Today's scripture reading, it comes from Psalm chapter 103, verses 1 through 12. And today's sermon title is Truth for Yourself. Again, today's scripture reading, it comes from Psalms 103, verse 1 through 12. And today's sermon title is Truth for Yourself. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series on the Word of God, and we're making a bit of a shift this morning. The first half of our series was more at the 35,000-foot level, giving us the big picture. We looked at Scripture as how it's the most important authority for our lives and how it touches every area of our life. The second half of our series, starting today, looks at what it means on the ground floor. What, what, what does the Scripture mean for us as we live our lives. And so for today, we're thinking individually. What does Scripture mean for you and me personally? Now, Psalm 103 starts off with, bless the Lord. And that sounds kind of like something that you would do in church. It's a song that you would sing. But as you read through the rest of the psalm, you realize, no, this is actually something for every day. Probably something that you would need to do a number of times through the day. And how do you know that? It's because the person who wrote it, probably David, King David, not David Kim, probably David is thinking back to a specific time in Israel's history, and he's reflecting on that, thinking about something that you find written down in Scripture. And he takes that part of the Scripture and applies it to his own life now. He's saying that what God said back then actually means something for him today. And the time that he has in his mind is right after Israel had worshipped the golden calf at Mount Sinai. How do you know that? Because David says in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 103 that God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And that's actually a quote that you find back in Exodus 34. It's part of what God said to Moses as he was showing Moses some of his glory. And so as Moses was seeing 
how amazing God is, how glorious, God spoke. He put words to his glory, and he said, let me help you understand why what you're seeing is so amazing, so glorious. It's because this is what I am, this is what I'm like. And he said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the piece that you see quoted there in Psalm 103. He goes on as he's talking to Moses, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God tells things to Moses about himself that we could never learn any other way. We might be able to see God's glory, but we would never understand it, never understand why it was glorious without God speaking to us, without his word. It's amazing that he speaks at all, that he tells us what he's like. It's even more amazing, given that he does so right after one of Israel's biggest failures. See, if you remember the story, you know that God had already brought the Jewish people out of Egypt. He made them his own special people. And after he brought them out, he spoke to them. He gave them his commandments and his laws so that they would know how to live with him. And he did that because he had a special kind of love for them, a steadfast love. It's the kind of love that talks about how he entered into a covenant with them. It's kind of like God marrying them. And he told them that because he promised to give himself to them, that they needed to give themselves to him, that they needed to be loyal to him, to have no other gods in their lives except him. He offered to marry them. And they responded by accepting his proposal. Basically, they say to him, I do. I will be faithful and true to you, God, because you've been faithful and true to me. You have loved me like no one else ever has, and I love you back. They said to God after they heard his commandments that they would be faithful. And then they weren't. Within days, they asked their priest Aaron to make other gods. And they threw a great big party to celebrate their new gods. They betrayed the God who loved them. Betrayed his love, they jilted him. He proposed, they accepted, and then they gave him back his ring. Now, if you've ever been rejected after giving someone the very best that you have, you know you don't just sort of shrug that off. You can't just say, oh, well, it's no, it's no big deal. Who's next? If you can do that, then you didn't really give that person everything. You held something back from them. When you don't hold back and you get rejected, it hurts. You feel it. You feel it so strongly that it's even hard to put words to it. Okay, saying that you're sad, that, <laughs> that doesn't really come close to what you're feeling. Angry misses it. That's not nearly strong enough. Sometimes that's kind of like the best word that we have. It's what God was. He was angry. So angry at being rejected, he threatened to wipe them all out. Now, as modern people, we don't like the idea of God being angry. We really don't like him being that angry. But think about it. If God wasn't that angry, what would that mean? It would mean that he had held something back 
when he said he was promising to give them everything of him. And he hadn't. He didn't hold anything back, and so he was angry. You can't reject this kind of incredible love without his anger coming into play. And even if you don't like hearing that God's angry, you know deep down that it's reasonable. See, if you and I get angry when we're rejected, and we're only copies of God, images of God, copies of the original, then you know that it's reasonable that he would be more angry. And you know that it's reasonable to realize his anger would be more right than your anger and mine. See, our anger gets clouded. It gets all of that self-serving junk in it, but his doesn't. His anger is bigger, and it's better than ours, which meant that the people were really in danger. So Moses jumped in the way. He prayed for the people, prayed that God would not kill them, and God didn't. God did not give them what they deserved. A little while later, Moses asked the Lord to forgive them, and he said, if that's not possible, if you won't forgive them, then blot me out of the book that you've written. Take my name out and leave theirs in. Moses understood that in order for God to be loving and righteous, he had to be angry at rejection, and his anger had to have a cost. Moses knew you can't just make God angry and expect him to say, ah, oh, that's okay, just, just, just forget it. Moses understood that sin takes away from the goodness of the relationship that God's offering. And that if you're going to have that goodness back, you have to pay back somehow what was taken away. Moses offered to pay. He offered to sacrifice his place with God so that the people could have their relationship with him back. But God didn't take Moses up on his offer. He told him, no. Whoever has sinned against me, that's the person that I'll blot out of my book. And yet God did promise that he would go with the Israelites and that he would not destroy them. That he would reaffirm his covenant with them, reaffirm his marriage vows. That even though the people were faithless, they were the covenant breakers, it didn't change God. He was still the covenant keeper. And his keeping of the covenant was so strong that it would overwrite what they did. It would overwrite their breaking. After God reveals all of this to Moses, that's when he shows him his glory. It's then that he proclaims his name, proclaims his character. And that is what David is meditating on as he writes this psalm thinking about what God said in Scripture, about how he treated people who failed in their relationship with God, and how he treated them based on his character, not on theirs. And God, David is now thinking about what does that mean for me now, centuries later. So when he starts by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, he's not thinking about a religious setting. He's not thinking about singing a song in tabernacle. He's thinking about how do you handle life when you've sinned? How do you handle life when you've rejected this amazing God by rejecting how he told you to live? It's a psalm for the very worst day of your life. 
but it's also a psalm for every day of your life because it tells you that you now live your entire life in the context of grace. That God loves you with the kind of love that you just can't lose. You can't wear out this kind of love. A kind of love that you didn't do anything to earn, which means what? You can't do anything to lose it. And so you can rely on, his, on God's love on your best days and on your worst. That's what this psalm is about. About how do you apply what you see in God to yourself so that his love that was true back then becomes true for you right now. How do you do that? Well, think about two things for the rest of our time. First, you need to talk to yourself. I'll explain that in a minute. And then second, you need to know what to say to yourself when you talk to yourself. So just two things for the rest of our time. You need to talk to yourself and what you need to say to yourself if you're going to experience God's life-transforming love. First, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Notice here who David's talking about. Talking to, excuse me. He's not directing this song to God. He's not directing it outward to the rest of the people of Israel. He's talking to himself, talking to his own soul. And he's telling himself that there is something that he needs to do. Telling himself that he needs to be active, not passive. That he needs to be intentional, not spontaneous. That he needs to get hold of his soul and direct his soul, guide his soul. That he has to be responsible for doing the work of directing himself. And that's a word that many of us need, myself included. Many of us need to hear. Because many of us are better at listening to ourselves than we are at talking to ourselves. We're better at listening to what others have said to us, better at listening to what we believe about ourselves. And when you spend time listening to yourself, just passively allowing thoughts to run through your head, the thoughts that tend to pop up into your mind are usually not helpful. Usually tend to be things like, you'll never amount to much. You shouldn't even try. You never do anything right. <laughs> you ruin everything. You're not good enough. This is too hard. You should just quit. You're too tired. Don't hope for much. You'll just be disappointed. Nothing ever works out for you. You're no good in relationships. You don't understand people. No one really likes you. The list goes on. You can hear them. It seems like there's an endless stream of things that our minds tell us about how bad we are, about how bad other people are, about how ugly everything in the world is. And if you allow yourself to just listen to those thoughts that flood through you, they shape what you believe about yourself. They shape what you believe about life. They turn you sour. They make you pessimistic, discouraged, depressed. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor and author. He put it this way in his book, Spiritual Depression. Quote, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life 
is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but there they are talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that the solution for this is that you have to take yourself firmly in hand and speak to yourself, that you have to break into all of those negative thoughts from yourself, and you have to say, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And you tell yourself, these are the thoughts that I should be thinking about, rather than just letting the thoughts go wherever they want to go. You teach yourself what to think about. You teach yourself what to meditate on. You teach yourself the kinds of things that ought to be playing in the background of your mind rather than just going on autopilot. And the very first thing that David wants his self to know, the very first thing that he tells himself is forget not. Forget not all God's benefits. That's a poetic way of saying don't forget remember. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and remember all His benefits. Actively teach yourself to remember the things that God has done for you. In other words, you're telling yourself there is a certain content that I need to remember, that I need to tell myself, remind myself to meditate on God's benefits, on the things that He's done for me. And you realize that's very different from what people often mean by meditation. Because the goal here in Psalm 103 is not for you to empty your mind. You realize that's not how you live your faith. That's not a Christian approach to spirituality. The goal is not to have some kind of mystical, spiritual experience while you check out intellectually. The goal is to do the hard work of filling your mind with content, not emptying it. Which means that you're going to have to be careful with what you fill it. Because it's easy to fill it with things that aren't true, things that will leave you just as badly off as when you were listening to yourself. I'm going to date myself here. Back in the early 1990s, Bill Murray starred in a movie called What About Bob? Highly recommend it if you've not seen it. Murray plays a man who suffers from multiple phobias, and he suffers so badly that he just can hardly leave his apartment. And so the opening scene shows us Bob trying to get up the courage to leave his apartment. He's half sitting up, and he's massaging his temples, he's massaging his forehead, and he's repeating over and over, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful, in this totally self-defeated voice. And he just does this over and over and over. You see him walking down the street eventually. I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. Only clearly it's not true. <laughs> he does not feel good, great, or wonderful. And he's only getting himself more and more anxious, more and more worked up, the longer that he tells himself this. Because it's obviously not true. And so, yes, he is talking to himself, not just listening to his fears, but the multiple lies that he's telling himself are not helping. He's looking for a solution where? From inside of himself. 
David calls us to something else. He tells us that, yes, we have to take responsibility for what goes through our mind, but we direct ourselves outward, not inward. We direct ourselves away from ourselves toward the Lord. And so we have to look at His benefits if we're going to have any real help for dealing with ourselves. So point two then, what are those benefits? What is it that we're actually supposed to keep in mind? Verse three, that he's the God who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So what are you supposed to actively remember? There's two main things here. Several subpoints under each one, but two main things. You actively remember that God deals with everything, every problem that your sin causes, and you actively remember that He restores your connection with Him. Let's talk first about how you, He do, deals with what you've done wrong. Several things here. First, He forgives you, He doesn't keep going back to your sin. God is not in heaven reviewing your sin, remembering it. He doesn't tie how he thinks about you to what you've done. Doesn't keep bringing it back up to you. He forgives you. And he heals all your diseases. Don't think here physical disease. Okay, remember back in Egypt, Exodus, excuse me, after the people worshipped the golden calf, God sent a plague. It was a consequence for what they had done wrong, but it was a consequence that did not kill them, didn't destroy them. David looks back on that time and he says, here's what we learned from that mess. God forgives, and he doesn't let you experience the full consequences of what you've done. He heals all your diseases. He forgives all your sins, and he unwinds the consequences that you've invited to have for yourself. He does those two things, and he also redeems your life from the pit. Pit here is shorthand for the underworld. It's where you would go in order to be punished for what you've done wrong. It's the place where you deserve to be when you've sinned, where you are cut off forever from God. But God steps in, and he won't let that happen. He redeems you, pays for you, so that that's not where you're headed. That's one of the significant benefits that you need to remind yourself of, that God deals with everything that your sin causes. But then second, he restores your connection with him. So instead of giving you endless death and punishment, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good things. You're now wearing his love and mercy. But you're not wearing that like a cloak. It's not a shirt. It's what? It's a crown. Who wears crowns? Only royalty. What God is saying is that his love and his mercy now make you part of his royal family. And again, remember, back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, it was a time that shows us how we're all slaves of sin, people who need to be rescued. And what are you realizing here? God takes you and me former slaves of sin, and puts crowns on us, elevates us from slaves to sons and daughters, not because of how good we are, not because we've impressed him, 
but because he still loves us even after everything that we've done. And so he doesn't relate to us on the basis of our sin. He relates to us on the basis of his love. Think about it. Think about what's going on when you sin. You're saying to the God who wants to marry you, here's your ring back. I'm just not that into you. And instead of taking it back, God forgives you. And in addition to the ring, you get a crown. He raises you above what you could ever hope to be. Doesn't give you the bad things deserve, gives you the good things that you don't deserve. Just to make sure you really get that, he reviews that in verse 10. When David writes, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. It's so great that verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God is telling you, what is it that you need to meditate on? What do you need to actively think about? It's that his love is greater than your sin. It's greater than my sin. And he tells you that he doesn't just settle, doesn't just put up with your sin. He does something about it. He separates it from you, which means God no longer relates to you on the basis of what you've done because he can't. If he separates you from what you've done, then what you've done is no longer part of you. And because it's no longer part of you in any way, it doesn't color the way that he thinks about you. You are not right now the product of your past. You are not the product of what you've done. You are now who you are because of what he's done for you. That's what you have to make yourself think about. Let me be incredibly practical because you have to make yourself think about this every day. This needs to be the very first thing that you hear in the morning. Don't turn to your phone. Don't put the TV on in the background. Turn to Psalm 103. You need to start here. You need to read this. After you've read it long enough, you need to memorize it until it's the way that your mind thinks. When you think you've really got Psalm 103, go to Exodus 32 and 34. Keep going throughout the entire Scripture looking for how God's steadfast love never ceases, how His mercies are new every morning. That's what this psalm is saying. Make this the first thing that you hear so that you remind yourself of it all day long, so that it becomes the center of your conversations with every person that you have. This is what you need on your worst day. This is what you need when you have done something worse than you ever thought you would. It's what you need to remind yourself when you get up in the morning and the thoughts about how bad you are just start pouring into your mind and your heart. This is what you bring yourself back to throughout the day when you start feeling anxious and worried, depressed. And it's what you need to remember when your day's going great. You need to remember that there isn't anything that this world can give you, nothing that you can give yourself that comes even close to what God's already given you. You have to remind yourself of how amazing 
this offer is. And yet I'm left with one last question, and that is, how can it be true? <laughs> how can it be true that God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, but keeps loving us anyway? You go back into Exodus 34, and you remember what I read earlier, that when God reveals himself to Moses, he does talk about how incredibly gracious he is. But he also says he's incredibly just. He says he will by no means clear the guilty. That he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And you ask, how can both of those be true? That's the puzzle of the whole Old Testament. Scripture is super clear. God's love for his people is permanent. You cannot outsin his love. And God's justice is absolute. There is a full and complete reckoning, full punishment for every last thing that you and I have ever done wrong. How can both of those be true? How can God not let sin go unpunished and yet not treat us as our sins deserve? How can his steadfast love for us still be steadfast when we've rejected his love? Moses gets us moving in the right direction. He points the way. He offered to trade his life for the lives of the people, offered to take their punishment, offered to be blotted out of God's book of life for them. God said no. Moses had his own failings, his own need, sins that needed to be punished. Moses wasn't good enough, but Jesus is. That's why he's the solution to the problem. The problem of how can God love and punish sins that he hates? And the solution is that God himself would pay our, for our sins. That God would absorb God's wrath because no one else could. No one else could endure God's extreme hatred of evil. No one could survive that except God himself. But to do that, God would have to become human. Because on his own, God can't take responsibility for something that isn't his. That's not just. But when Jesus became human, he could rightly take on responsibility for our sin. He could represent us human beings before God as a human being. And he could rightly offer himself in our place. That's the wonder of the gospel that God would take on himself the burden of our sin just so that we could have the friendship with him <laughs> that we were willing to throw away. That's what you need to remind yourself of daily if you're going to live this life of faith. Jack Miller coined the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. Psalm 103, yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. What does that mean? It means that you need to regularly, daily remind yourself of the most important thing that God has done for you. That he's forgiven you because he loves you. And that you now have a life lived in his love that you could never give yourself. So when you're depressed by what you see coming out of your life, you have to preach the gospel to yourself so that you don't get crushed by what you see coming out of your life. 
when you see your failings, you have to preach the gospel to yourself until you know that those failings do not define you. When you're full of regrets over the bad things that you've done, you have to preach the gospel to yourself to remember that your future is not dictated by your past. It's dictated by Christ's past, by what he did for you. And you need to tell and retell yourself the gospel because every day you and I will do things, say things, think things that we're not impressed with. We will sin. You'll sin against God. You'll sin against your friends. You'll sin against your co-workers, against your family. Children, you'll sin against your parents. Parents, you'll sin against your kids. You'll sin against your spouse. You and I will sin against complete strangers that we run into when we're shopping or on the, on the highway. And if you don't run to the gospel with what you've done, you're just going to make it worse. You'll make excuses. You'll tell yourself why it really was okay to do what you did, say what you did, think what you did. You'll tell other people why it wasn't so bad. You'll defend yourself. <laughs> or you'll ignore what you've done. You'll, you'll distract yourself with different fantasies. You'll try to make up for it. Work hard to prove that, no, you're, you're really a good person. Or you'll just quietly sit back and give up. But if you run to the gospel, you find resources there for dealing with your failures that change you. And that change then how you engage with the people around you. Several years ago, I had to apologize to one of our neighbors. He saw me trying to maneuver things on a sports team to benefit one of my kids. And he called me out on it. He was absolutely right. And then he wanted nothing to do with me. He told me I have a long history going back to my childhood. I cut people off when they disappoint me. And he did for a while. Finally, we were able to talk. It was a really good conversation. I shared with him how he was right. But I also shared with him that he didn't see nearly enough. That I could see threads of that same manipulating streak going back decades. And that while I had seen progress in dealing with it, I also knew that it was something I still wrestled with. I told him every day I see a little bit more clearly how bad I really am. And the only reason that I can stand seeing that is because every day I also see a little bit more clearly how much I'm loved by God. How much more than I can possibly imagine. What I did was not okay. It was wrong. What I did had consequences. And just like everything else that I've ever done wrong, it was forgivable. And there was a way of dealing with it moving forward so that the consequences did not end up like they should have. I didn't gloss over it, but I wasn't crushed by it. I could talk about it. Why? Because it's just one more evidence that says, I really need the gospel. I really need to meditate on who God is and on what he's done for me. I need to do more than just think about it. I need to experience that love. I need to live out of this gospel with this friend that I had sinned against. 
And that moment with him, that gospel-infused moment of conversation, ended up helping to rescue a friendship that I did my absolute best to destroy. That's the grace of God in my life. It's grace that I don't deserve. It unwinds not only my sin, it unwinds the effects of my sin. And none of that is possible if I defend myself, if I make excuses, if I pretend that I'm really better than I am. None of that is possible if I try to manipulate my neighbor into liking me again. None of that is possible if I just decide this is hopeless and I just need to move on. It's only possible when I preach the gospel to myself over and over and over until the truth starts to settle into my soul a little bit more deeply so that I believe a little bit more than I did before that I don't just have a God who forgives me or a God who removes my sin from me, but I have a God who does that because he loves me. That's the God that we're about to meet as we receive communion. So let me urge you, trust his love. Take time to talk to him. Confess your sins. Confess as I pray. Confess as we come forward to receive communion. Tell him that you love him. And tell him that you want more of him. Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't just simply take away the negative, but you give us a positive Thank you that you don't just deal with our sin, but you give us what, the love for you that we never had to start with. Thank you, Lord, that your plan of restoration is complete. It's total. Thank you that you did all of that through your life, your death, and your resurrection. And thank you that that does not live 2,000 years ago in history. Thank you that it enters into our lives every single day, every moment of every day. Lord, thank you for your incredible love and grace to us. In Jesus' name.